Welcome to church. We've been uh, studying church, trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing here. You know, we got a new building and all. Uh, the last several weeks, ever since the new year, really, we've been studying church and what it is. We came up, we came up with some great insights, found out about faith and hope and love, which were like the measuring sticks the Apostle Paul used to determine if a church was a good church or not doing so good. Did they demonstrate faith? Did they demonstrate hope? Did they demonstrate love? And remember, we used some visual aids for that and everything. Then last week, we talked about wor worship and what worship is. What are we trying to do when we get together here and worship God? What does it mean to worship God on a daily basis? How do you worship Him? Like when you hit the back doors on the way out, how do you know if you did it or not? It's not automatic just because you walk into worship building. How do you do it? We answered that question. You can watch that one last week. But today we get into another vital aspect. In fact, um, I was probably in church a long time before I understood this next one and what it really meant. Fellowship. Fellowship is absolutely crucial to what church is supposed to be. And I'm going to try and take this apart for you, but first of all, you need to understand when the Bible uses this word for fellowship, and I'll tell you about that word koinonia later. It seems to be trying to communicate to us that it's something different than just being friends. <laughs> Anybody in the world can have a friend. You don't have to be in church to have a friend, right? So it must be different than friends. It's different than having something you all agree upon together, an issue you're trying to promote, like a political issue or a company you're trying to grow. Or it's got to be something more than that kind of a partnership. What is fellowship? Well, I want to tell you something. It's really significant to understand. Like I said, it was a while before I understood this. Koinonia, or real fellowship, is highly spiritual. Oh, I don't mean we just talk about spiritual things or it's just some kind of religious group. What I mean is there's a connection that happens that's not just in your mind in some issue that you believe in or some company you're trying to grow. It's not just in your body that you happen to physically be in the same or you grew up in the same area or had the same likes or dislikes, you know, friends. It's something that's connected in your spirit. It's something deeper than psychological compatibility or physically or even emotionally coming from the same point of view. It's a connection that's deep, and I'd like to pray for you and me that we could understand what the Bible here is trying to present to us about fellowship so that maybe we could really be a church, a fellowship, a church. Let me pray with you. Lord, I pray for everybody here that if that is, they've come here today to try and learn and try and understand more clearly what church is, that we could come to greater insights and understanding as to what it means for us to be a church personally. And so I come to you on behalf of everyone here and pray that you'll help them. Just like you've helped me to grow an understanding about this subject and what it's going to take for me to do it and what it, what it takes of you in my life to do it and what it takes from others. So I pray that today, Lord, we would be able to understand, and you would give us the ability by the power of your Spirit to understand this spiritual concept of fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know how much you've ever studied church history, but if you have, um, there's a pattern that comes out that's very easy to observe, and you've probably heard about it before. 
<clears throat> from the beginning of the church, like in the book of Acts, what happens? They have enemies, lots and lots of enemies, and they get attacked. The Jewish authorities don't want them around. They attack them. The Roman authorities don't want them around. They attack them. And it almost as though the more you attack the church, the more it grows. I mean, you get in a little few years later and you got Nero, the emperor. Nero thinks it's entertaining to take Christians and throw them to the lions and watch the lions eat them. And everybody applauds. It's entertaining at the Colosseum. Everybody wants to go see the, the Christians get it. Wow, this is horrible. But the church just keeps growing. It doesn't defeat them. It's like the more you beat them, the more you kill them, the more you hurt them, the faster they grow. And the world's perplexed. Why is this happening? And I suppose we looking back are kind of perplexed too. But it's not just back then. You come up to today, right now in contemporary history. The church, the underground church in China is estimated by some to be 400 or 500 million people under the persecution of the communist regime that wants to wipe them out. They keep growing and expanding and growing and multiplying. Why does this phenomena happen? And that's just from today all the way back to New Testament. There's tons of examples in between. Like I said, study church history, you'll see this pattern. The big question is then what? Why? Is it just, this is kind of like human nature? Tell someone they can't do something, they want to do it? Well, that doesn't quite explain it. Is it just kind of like this is God's way? Well, they can find God's way working very differently in other parts of the New Testament as well as in church history. It's not always this way. Why is it so often this way? Is it because when you get persecuted, you take like worship more seriously? Well, maybe, but that doesn't really answer the question as to why it happens. Is it that you take the Bible more seriously and people study the Bible more? Or you can find very serious Bible students that don't undergo persecution. They just want to know what God said, right? What is it? I suggest to you what makes the church grow more under persecution than without persecution is fellowship. When people get attacked, when Christians get beat, when the Communist Party comes after them, when they're getting lynched, when they're getting hung, when they're getting thrown into prison, which is happening, I don't know if you know much about contemporary culture, that's happening all over the world today. Christians get more serious than ever about fellowship. I believe that's really what's going on. It's a powerful witness to what happens and what Jesus prayed for in John 17. Remember John 17, the famous Lord's Prayer before he goes to glory, before he knows he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to die on the cross, raise from the dead. What does he pray for his disciples? His fellowship, his group of, his church. His, he says, he prays, Lord, I pray you'll make them unified. Lord, I pray you'll protect them from the world and keep them together. Because he knows if they can stay together, they can have an impact. If they stay together, his vision for changing the world can take place. His vision for helping people be saved from their sins can happen only if they have fellowship. And sure enough, we get attacked. It's like all of a sudden we get serious about, gee, we're in this together. You and me better stick together. You and me better help each other. You and me better be like brothers and sisters. You and me better, right? Fellowship happens. And I suggest to you, 
that the church becomes more dynamic under persecution because they experience what God intended for them, this spiritual thing called fellowship, where they really become like brothers and sisters and relate to each other in very, very deep ways. You see, they become that kind of committed community with that deep connectedness. You see, without fellowship, church gets kind of stale. Relationships get kind of distant. People are kind of... Um, just going through the rituals or the routines. You've been to a church like that? I have. There's no fellowship. It's just religion. If you've ever studied revivals in the Bible or revivals in New Testament history, it's phenomenal because what happens in a revival is plain and simple, fellowship. People start getting honest with God, confessing their sins. People start getting honest with each other being truthful, having fellowship. In fact, you may have noticed this church is called Fellowship Alliance. You know why? Because I personally believe it is the number one missing ingredient in the Church of America. Because of our prosperity, because of our ability to do things independently, we do. We're independent. We do our own thing. I don't have to be in a community. I don't need support from anybody. And it makes us a powerless church because we don't have revival. And I believe the key to revival, which is why we called ourselves Fellowship Alliance, is fellowship. People looking to be together is one. Like Jesus prayed in John 17. We could actually do it. Okay, ready for the big question? I hope I laid the groundwork to get you this question. Here's the big question. Is this possible to have real fellowship without getting beat on, <laughs> you know, without having persecution? Is it possible for a church to really be, you know, like us, living in Medford, New Jersey, in nice homes, and nice places, and nice schools, and all the good stuff and millions of things to do, that we could be so committed to one another, we could have real New Testament fellowship, this spiritual dimension of connectedness? Well, obviously Jesus did because he prayed for it. He didn't think we had to be persecuted. He didn't pray, dear God, let them have it, you know. No, he said, they, may they be one. Obviously Paul did because you go through the New Testament churches when he writes to each church, he didn't say, oh, I pray that you'll undergo great persecution. No, he says, I pray that you guys would care for one another and help one another and love one another and teach one another. We're going to look at some of those tonight. Obviously, Peter did. Obviously, John did. We're going to read some things he talked about, walking in the light and being together. So it must be possible to do this without being persecuted. Hallelujah, right? That's good news. The question is, how do we do it? How do we make this happen? I'm going to just make it real simple right now. You ready? Real, real simple. Just two things have to happen for fellowship to take place. Number one. You need to know how badly you need it. The problem with a lot of us is we don't even want to admit we need it. You know, let's face it. I'm fine. I'm fine. No, no, I'm really, I'm okay. You're not okay. You need a brother. You need a sister. You need a hug. <laughs> or as the Bible talks about, you need a holy kiss. <laughs> you need someone to care for you, help you, encourage you, build you up, admonish you, teach you. All these scripture passages start making sense if you realize how badly you need it. 
You need fellowship. It's almost like number one. And, and if you think you don't need it, I, I don't know if the rest of the sermon is going to help you at all. But if you sense somewhat you need this, yeah, I would love to have a friend like that. I'd love to have somebody in my life that helped me and encouraged me. Or I want to be there for someone else. Good. You're starting in the right place. Number two, God promises he can do it. First, you need to see your need. Then you need to recognize, well, God can do this. If I will take the right steps, if I can do the right thing, if I can just start toward here, God is enabling me to do it, which is why Jesus prayed that it would happen. It's why the Holy Spirit resides inside us so that we can do this. With that in mind, look at what's called the big idea of the sermon. It says church is supposed to be fellowship to the core. <clears throat> There's a Greek word used for fellowship. It's the word koinonia. Koinonia is the, is the literal translation of what the word fellowship is in English. And like I mentioned at the beginning, it's more than a physical fellowship. It's more than, you know, just living together. It's more than just a psychological compatibility. It's a spiritual union. How do you do it? Look at point one. Let's take it apart. <clears throat> fellowship begins with a commitment. The word ekklesia is the word used for church. And 115 times in the New Testament, we see this word ekklesia. Ekklesia is actually a compound word, meaning it has two parts. Ek is the word out from in the Greek. So it's a prefix put on this word kaleo. Kaleo means called out. Makes sense, doesn't it? Called out. So it means we're called out of the world into the family of God. Folks, this is what it means to be born again. You couldn't go to heaven in the family you were in. You had to be born into God's family. That's the fellowship you've entered into. That's the community you're part of. You're part of the family of God. Because no one, absolutely no one, goes to heaven who's not in the family of God. To get in, you got to be called. Called out of this world into the family of God. And that's the thing that you get when you understand the word Koinonia or ecclesia. It means you're, you're called out of the world into the family of God. Look with me at John chapter 17. I've referred to it a couple times already, and I just want to look at one verse. We're going to look at some more in here later. But in verse 11, we see what Jesus prayed and John recorded for his disciples. Jesus is talking to the Father, and we're jumping right into the middle of the prayer here, and he says, And I am no longer in the world, Father. But they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus doesn't pray that they be rich, doesn't pray that they be powerful, doesn't pray that they would have prosperity, doesn't even pray that they would be, have friends. He goes deeper than that and says, Father, I pray they'll be one. One? But they're two. Yeah, but I'm praying that they would be so close to each other, they'd be like the same person. They would be one. Now, now did you realize how miraculous what he's asking is for here is? It's unbelievable. Okay, you got, you got John and James and you got Matthew. Hold, hold, hold. Right there, you got a problem. Matthew's a tax gatherer. Matthew's a, a guy that works for the government, and then you got two fishing boys. Like they don't have different; they have different backgrounds, they have different skills, they have different personalities. They come from a whole. Yeah, Lord, one. 
minimize the differences, maximize the sameness in Christ. But Jesus knows it's not going to just be those two guys or those problems. There's going to be other personality differences. There's going to be as we grow, it's not going to be all Jews because right now it's all Jewish boys. It's going to be Gentiles. It's going to be people from Africa and people from Asia and people from Europe and people, right? And the further it grows, and Jesus is asking God for an absolute miracle. Lord, make them one. Because God knows, Jesus knows that if God can make them that close in their fellowship, the impact can be enormous. But if they're divided and if they're fractured and if they disagree and if they're arguing and if they're complaining against one another, boom. They're nothing. They're no different than anybody else in the world and everybody can see that's the truth. Because there's no connectedness. There's, there's not this commitment to be one. Then look what he says next. Look at the rest of the verse, right? Look what he says at the end. Lord, may they be one even as we are one. Did you catch that? That's pretty deep. Even as Jesus and God are one, he's saying, may they be one. Do you see what he's doing here? He's comparing the unity within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the unity you and I are supposed to have with each other. He's saying, dear God, just like I'm one with you as your son, make them one with you and one with each other in this unbelievable thing called koinonia or fellowship so that they can change the world. But they're from different backgrounds. Yeah, but they have different ideas. And yeah, they do different jobs and they see things so differently. Yeah, but God can minimize that according to what Jesus thinks. And God can take away the differences and elevate the sameness. The, 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 Jesus is praying here for a miracle. And when you see it happening, like I said, in what's called the revival, or see it happening in a healthy church, or see it happening where people are caring for one another and helping each other, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Just this one verse, if God just answers this one verse of Jesus' prayer, it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. In fact, look at a passage in the book of Hebrews. Ready? Get your Bibles. Turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 speaks to this issue. And the author is writing to the church there, trying to tell him something, and he says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So he says, we should get together and try and help each other have love and good deeds. That works, by the way. But he says, first you have to realize this, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It seemed to be that some had bad habits of not wanting to come to church, not wanting to be involved in the assembly. And he's saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You can't neglect your meeting together. It's almost as though he's saying, okay, to fulfill God's uh, priority of fellowship in our life, to answer Jesus' prayer for us, we need to first make a commitment to what? Just meet together. I mean, I thank God for you that keep coming to church every week or you're involved in a men's group or a women's group, keep coming, keep doing it. Do you understand? The Bible's teaching us this is where fellowship happens. This is where the Holy Spirit works. Now God can bring you there. But if you don't show up, you got pretty much a zero chance of this happening in your life. It's going to be very hard to do it. Even if you can text and tweet. 
and Facebook. It's not the same. But when you show up, so he says, and don't, don't neglect the gathering together, which is the habit of some. Now, the reason I'm starting out with this point, because it's like, well, that's step one. That, that's kindergarten level. You got to show up. You, you, can't, you can't claim to be in union or oneness or fellowship or even friendship with somebody, but you're never there for them. Hey, you're not much of a friend, are you? I got a picture I want to put on the screen. See that picture there in the middle? That picture was taken in 1941, a long time ago. That is a church basketball team at Minnetonka Community Church, the church I grew up in. What, the reason I'm showing it to you, and I'm going to give you more detail about it in a minute. The point I want to make is, all those kids on that team, I pretty much knew all of them. But I wasn't even born until 1952. Well, how do you know them? Well, because one of the guys on the team is my dad. And all those guys were still in the same church. They were still in your church? How many years later? Yeah, they had this basic idea that we should be committed to each other. So let me run through them quick. The guy down the corner, that side, that's my dad, right there. Right after this, not long after this, dad uh, joined the Marine Corps, went off, fought World War II. In fact, most of the guys in the picture went into World War II. And they all came back alive. Isn't that amazing? So there's my dad. He was an anti-aircraft gunner in the Philippines and a dog trainer. The guy next to him is a guy named Arch Winnegar. He became a Baptist pastor. The guy in the middle with the basketball, that's Bob Port. Bob, I knew Bob because I knew Bob's son. Bob had two boys, Pat. Bob's holding the basketball. He's probably like the best athlete in the bunch because the guy was a phenomenal athlete. In fact, so was his wife. So his kids were great athletes. And I knew one of them, Pat. Pat was an amazing athlete. And of course, his dad's teaching him all the stuff, but he's just got the finesse. You know, some guys just got it. He's got the gifts. But in junior high and high school, Pat Port, this guy's son, got deep into drugs. By the time I got to know Pat, because he's probably about three, three years, four years younger than me, he... Um, he had been in the hospital three times with overdoses. And then he found Jesus. Boy, did he find Jesus. Pat Port was like a radical Jesus freak with me. He would tell everybody in high school what happened to him because literally he'd probably be dead. And then God renewed his mind and God renewed his heart. So I knew Bob Port because I knew Pat. The guy next to him is Bob Olson. He was actually one of my dad's best friends, one of the caller guys on the team. And then there's a guy there next. That's, that's Don Timpson and his brother Seymour Timpson. They lived not far from me. I knew all their kids. Those guys kept coming to our church. The guy next to him is Delbert Keel. That's the guy that actually had a lot to do with leading my dad to Jesus. And then he became a chaplain in the Airborne Division. Not many airborne chaplains. He would literally jump out of a plane with a Bible, no gun, into Italy, into Germany, literally during the war. He saw tons of people killed. He's got shrapnel on his back. In fact, I think he lived longer than any of these guys. He lived into his 90s and then became a missionary in Japan after the war to help Japanese. I don't, this guy Arbogast next to him, I don't even know who that is, but the guy next, yeah, that guy. You know, my dad married a woman that this guy, and that guy dated my mother. So let's not talk about him. Move on to the next guy. Could have been my dad. Like, oh, no, no. His name was John Foote, you know? Okay, then this guy here, that's Jack Hastings. Jack Hastings went on to become a uh, radio 
I guess disc jockey you call it, but his son Darren became this leader of a Jesus rock band during the Jesus movement. Okay, again, why do I show you this? Simple, simple, simple. I'm not trying to glorify their basketball team or say they had anything. I'm just trying to say these guys were on the church basketball team. They had found the Lord in a radical way like my father who didn't come from a Christian background. They'd become Christians. They went and fought World War II. They came back home. They still stuck together for life. Listen to me. Let me tell you something real personal. I think that's what church is supposed to be like. That's my hope and dream this church would be like. We would not only live together, we would die together. I'll be there for you. You'd be there for me. That's why the underground church in China is so dynamic. Those people say those words, they mean it because they might die next week. I mean it. Let's be together. Let's have real community, real fellowship, real oneness, Lord. Make them one just like we're one, Jesus prayed. So the first thing I want to teach you about community or about fellowship or about unity is that you need to have a commitment to it. Like I put down in the, in, in the outline in point one, it starts with a commitment. Are you willing to make the commitment? Secondly, how do you grow that? It tells us next point. Fellowship grows with, with, with love and openness. In Jesus' dying words, to his community, his group of guys, his fellowship, his church. He said this in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, listen, guys, let me put it this way. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And what do we say love is like? Love's like concrete. It's that solid of commitment. You also are to love one another. Verse 35. Here's the key. Here's the promise. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's like the promise of it. He says, I, I know, <clears throat> let me put it this way. Evangelism, or trying to help people find Jesus, is weak when our fellowship is weak. Because seriously, you lead someone to Jesus, you bring them to church, and people don't really care. People really don't know each other. People are just hanging. You just, it's a religious thing to do. That's not very attractive. Who wants to be a part of that? But then they, if you, you tell them about Jesus and they come to church and they see this dynamic commitment for people have to one another and they're like, hey, I want in on that. How, how can I be a part of that kind of family? And so Jesus said, well, then the key, guys, is to love one another. Because by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. But as we said, love's like concrete. <laughs> you pour concrete, you're pretty committed. It's solid, you know. It's the key to what makes it a real church. It grows when we make that kind of commitment. I could tell you story after story uh, in people's lives of this church, people who struggled with alcoholism or had a spouse or a loved one that did, and people in this church stood with them through it. People that have been through divorce, Divorce situations are almost close to divorce, and they hung in there with each other through it. People that have been through death, death of a child, death of a spouse, 
And the people in this church stood with them. Their friends even got closer to them. Or I could tell you about people who lost jobs or had an affair or got in an accident or had a loved one get in an accident or went through cancer or da-da-da-da-da. I could tell you about in, in 1983 when my dad died. I was only 30 years old. I was so low and people in this church, little house church, we were just a little house church then and they supported me and encouraged me. Or when our church grew a little bigger and I got the Epstein-Barr virus and I didn't work for months and people still cared for me and loved me. I could talk about how it's helped me in raising my children, helped me in my marriage, and on and on and on. All because I needed more than I realized I needed fellowship. And it grew. You start with a little commitment, and the commitment grows, and it grows, and you go through wars together, and you go through hardships together, and you go through difficulties, and you go through marriage conflicts, and you through, you know, and it just gets deeper and deeper. Honest to God, there's people in this church that if they died tomorrow, I'd cry like a baby because they're connected to me. They're part of me. And that's what church is supposed to be. And Jesus is trying to lay it out here to them. How do you do it? Nobody says it better than John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. So turn to the epistle of John. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. One verse, he kind of like puts it all together. I hope you never forget this verse. The book of 1 John is really all about fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. And in 1 John 1, 7, we read these words. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, referring to God, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He uses that word koinonia or fellowship in there. But if we walk in the light, he puts that prerequisite on it. There's got to be a walking in the light to have this in your life. Think about walking in the dark. He uses this analogy. So if I'm walking in the dark, I have to watch out I don't trip. I have to watch out for boulders if I can see them. But if it's dark, I probably can't. But I'll probably trip over a boulder. A long-hanging branch would hit me right in the face. I could fall into a pothole. I could break my leg. I could walk off a cliff if I'm walking in the dark. You could walk into the water. You could walk... Walking in the dark is dangerous. I'm suggesting to you, I think he's suggesting to us, a life of a person who decides they don't need fellowship and they don't want to be connected like that, you're walking into the dark and you're probably going to get hurt pretty, pretty badly. Because you don't have someone else with you. You're not exposed to them. That's the opposite side, isn't it? Walking in the light. Walking in the light shows you where the path is, shows you where the low-hanging branches are, shows you where the pitfalls are, gives you guidance in, into direction of what you can do because you can see, you can even see into the future. So take the analogy now. He's trying to say this is where fellowship is, is walking in the light. That means I have another person with me, a group of people with me, and they can help me see, and they can help me not trip, and they can hold me up when I fall, right? That's what he's trying to say. Walking in the light means you have other people you're exposed to. Oh, that's where we come into the problem. Light exposes. And that's what you didn't want, right? Didn't want them to see that your fault, your sin, your rebellion, your bad heart, your negative attitude, your nastiness. And this is where it all stops. You know, I might as well mention it right now. I've got to mention it sometime in this sermon. There's probably some of you there, you're not really going to 
do anything about what I'm saying because it's too scary. Oh, I was in a church. I did that once. Oh, I got hurt. I got stabbed in the back. Oh, I was so betrayed. They hurt me. Yeah, I know. Been there, done that. Of course, it's people. So Jesus didn't want that to happen to you, or he did. Jesus didn't pray the prayer if there would be one, or he did. It doesn't tell us to walk in the light, or it does. Do you see what I'm saying? The opposite is a deterrent enough to say, well, I'm not going to be in the dark. I got to be exposed to somebody. I got to tell someone the truth that I struggle with alcohol or pornography or I got a problem at work or our marriage is falling apart. Do you share with anybody? The Bible says this is what it's supposed to be like. This will make, our love for one another will make us distinctive from everybody else on the planet. And we'll have a power no one else has because all they got are some friends. All they got is some psychological compatibility or same prejudices, right? We got something deeper and you don't want it. You don't want to go there because you're afraid. You're so self-protective. You don't want to be hurt again. Oh, I, I, do you hear me? I'm admonishing you. I'm saying, all right, you want to walk in the dark? Go ahead, go for it. But you're going to get hurt a lot worse than just sharing a fault you got or a problem you got. You want to walk in the light. This is why this church has mini churches or men's groups or women's groups or recovery groups or groups for youth or Alpha or all these different, they're all around groups because we're trying to get this people, you, a place where you can talk to somebody, share with somebody. Someone else can help you. Like one passage says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. It's like, bear the burden with you of life, with your rebellious teen or with your struggle against the way you eat, for example. Whatever it be you're struggling with. That's what he means by walking in the light. And notice he says here, this I, you got to look at, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Did you notice that? The blood of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. He didn't just die to cover our sins, but to cleanse us. Do you get the process? And I think that's why he says it this way here. When I get into true fellowship with somebody else, think about it now, and we're going to have this closeness, it's like a scrubbing. It's, it's like a washing. What? Well, that's a process. You mean God's going to scrub the sin out of me? God's going to clean the sin out of me? Yeah, when I get, like iron sharpens iron, the Old Testament says, so one person sharpens another. Well, that's going to be taking off some layers. <laughs> that's going to create some sparks and frictions. What if I don't agree? What if they don't like me? Yeah, that might happen. But that's how you're going to grow. That's how you're going to become this loving, kind. This is how you become what you always wanted to be only in fellowship. Like I put down in this point, it's when you have this commitment to love and openness. The blood of Jesus keeps cleaning us up. One last, or one thing I wanted to show you, I'm running out of time. I get carried away on this subject. There's a, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary and they sent me a magazine. I copied this out of that magazine. Um, a professor there, his name is Jones, uh, Barry Jones. He did a study in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's a professor, you know, of, of the word table. And he was shocked what he found. He said, 
sharing a table and having a table is central to all of the Old Testament and New Testament teaching. Listen to this. Sharing tables is one of the most uniquely human things we do. No other creatures consume its food at a table. I never thought of it like that. I guess unless the cat climbs up. But sharing, sharing tables with other people reminds us that there's more to food than fuel. We don't eat only for sustenance. Tables are one of the most important places of human connection. We're often most fully alive to life when sharing a meal around a table. We shouldn't be surprised then to find that throughout the Bible, God has a way of showing up at tables. In fact, it's worth noting that at the center of the spiritual lives of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we find a table. In the Old Testament, the table of Passover. In the New Testament, the table of communion. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright captured something of this sentiment when he wrote, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his disciples, what his forthcoming death was about uh, that was about to happen, what it would be like. He didn't give them a theory. He didn't give them a lecture. He sat down at a meal. One of the most important spiritual disciplines for us to recover in the kind of world in which we live today is the discipline of table fellowship. I'm convinced, he says, that one of the most important spiritual disciplines, listen to this, for us to recover in the kind of the world in which we live today is the discipline of fellowship, table fellowship. In the fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit-disorder culture in which we find ourselves, Christians need to recover the art of slow meals around a table with people we care about. I mean, do you even eat with your family? It's really becoming pathetic in our culture. Table fellowship doesn't often make uh, the uh, list of, uh, the, of the classical spiritual disciplines, but it should. But in the midst of a world that increasingly seems to have lost its way with regard to matters of both food and soul, Christian spirituality has something important to say about the way that sharing tables together nurses both our body and our soul. We need a recovery of the spiritual significance of what we eat, where we eat, and with whom we eat. After all, he mentions in the final day when we go to glory, what does it say is going to be in heaven? The feast of the Lamb at a table. You know, in our church, uh, we're, we're, we got tables out there, and when we get the part behind the balcony done upstairs, we're going to have tables up there. We're creating a cafe where we can get coffee and sandwiches and all this kind of stuff. And some have wondered, why are you doing this? Do you know this is the number one reason? I'm trying to create opportunities for fellowship around what? A table. That's all we're trying to do. Create opportunities for two people to look at each other, have a cup of coffee, and how are you doing? Start talking, maybe get into something significant in their life, maybe even pray together. You could even bring someone to the cafe. I don't know if you know, it's, it, it, oh, you're having money changes in there. No, money changes in the church are trying to make money. All the profit from everything that's ever sold over there goes to FASA, Fellowship Alliance South Africa, or to some other ministry of the church. Nobody's trying to make a dime off of that. That's not the point. The point is to create opportunities. It's just another way we can help fellowship happen. And as this professor says, try and recover what this culture's lost so badly. Good grief. We don't even talk to each other, you know, right? We're, we're busy texting. Maybe we could have this kind of a fellowship. Maybe we could be this kind of church. Maybe we could even have revival if we really had it.
So tables are just another way of doing it. It's going to open up in a couple of weeks to really get going. It's going to be exciting. Well, I'm way behind. I got to catch up. Sorry I took so long, but I get really excited about this. The third point is fellowship is powerful when people grow together. Turn with me to John 17. Let's, let's finish with this. In John 17, it says this. Here's the rest of Jesus' prayer, or part of it anyhow. He says, I do not ask for these only, God, but also for those who believe in, the th- in me through, the, through their word, which is how you and I became Christians because the disciples shared the word, right? That they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, who, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice the so that. The purpose is the world can know. Of the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Notice the so that idea. He's saying the whole thing happens and this is how the world is going to know when you and I really do love each other. Just like he said, by this all men will know you're my disciples and you have love for one another. He says, Lord, could, could you keep them one so that the world may know? I suggest to you evangelism is really weak when fellowship is weak. There's a word used, if I had time, I'd show you all the passages in the New Testament that have this uh, word in it. It's the word we translate one another, two words in the English, but in the the Greek, it's elion, one word, elion, one another. Let's put those passages on the screen. Oh, there they are. Let me read them through quickly. Just a few of them. He says, be at peace with one another. Don't grovel against one another. Be the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another. Don't devour one another. Beat the, you know, consume one another by your words. Be gentle and kind to one another. Be, 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 be bear one another's burdens. Seek the good of another. Don't complain against others. Confess your sins to one another. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. It's over and over and over through there. Be devoted to one another in love or give preference to each. Serve one another. Don't be haughty. Clothe yourselves. Uh, with humility toward one, don't judge one another and then bear one another's burdens and speak to one another in truth and comfort one another and encourage one. You get the idea, don't you? I don't have time to read them all, but don't you get the idea? One another. Do you have this in your life? Or is it just one? I'm telling you, I really believe, honest to God, I believe it, the weakness of the American church is because we're one ourself. Our culture's taught us to be independent. What's important to me is more important than anything. One another doesn't even cross the brainwave that I'm supposed to consider someone. I'm supposed to help someone. I'm supposed to encourage someone. I'm supposed to build someone. Yeah, now you're getting it. And all these are in the imperative, which means they're all commands. They're not suggestions. Wow. In fact, let me read this, and then I'm going to show you a God of Work story. In a book, which is the largest, this is written by a German guy. His name is Christian Schwartz. He did the largest church survey of anybody in human history, a thousand churches in 32 different countries, and he concluded this. Well, if we were to identify only one principle, he identifies a whole bunch of principles in here, that makes for a church to be strong, it makes a church a growing church, the most important one, 
without a doubt, would be small group fellowships, which is why I said our church has these all the time. They must be holistic groups beyond just having a Bible study together, but where people actually share out of their lives what's happening and how it can be applied to their life. I want to show you somebody, a videotape that we, an interview we did with somebody named Carol Adams. And, and watch this with me, and I'll pray with you at the end, about how this fellowship happened in her life. to church when I was a little kid <clears throat> my grandmother was a very strong Christian and she would bring me with her to different churches and then I stopped going and then when I was a teenager my parents forced me to go I'm not sure if it's because for me or my brother but we, we went my parents didn't go but I did and then I I stopped going I got married I I was pregnant twice had a couple miscarriages got divorced then I bought a little condo here in Medford and I was sitting home one day and I thought I don't want to keep going out drinking, going to parties, going to bars. Like, what else should I do? So this thought came to my mind. Why don't you go to church and maybe you'll meet a nice man there instead of these men that you meet in the bars. And that's really what drove me in my own mind to go to church. Of course, after you go for a while, you realize God's really who's driving you, but you think you're doing it on your own. So this Fellowship Alliance was right around the corner for me. And I thought, well, at least I'll get up and go because it's close and the name sounded friendly. So I came here on a Saturday night, 6 o'clock. I was the first person in the parking lot because I was a little nervous. Another car pulled in next to me, and it was this woman from church and her husband. And that's, thinking back on it, that's the first experience I had with a Christian person coming alongside me to help me to, you know, move forward. So I, I was really glad because I wasn't sure if I would have gone in all by myself. But Marty talked about mini church and how important it was to join a mini church and I thought well if I'm going to do this I guess I should follow through with that and give it a try. That was the beginning of me understanding how people, God's people, help you to understand who God is and God's love. So that that was probably a year after I'd been coming to church I joined a mini church. We started a weekly Bible study and it was very simple really to get me to show me what who Jesus was and I think we started out in the book of John and then um, after that we would have I mean the people in that group were amazing and I could still call on any one of them today that's how impactful that mini church was to me you know when you do all these services you think you're gonna help people but what happened to me in almost every case I've learned things from those people in those groups I became a small group leader at a table and started to realize, I didn't think I could do it, but then, you know, God's the one who's doing it. But you don't know that at first. You learn all that through all the experiences you did. I think as you grow and get to know who God is in your life and you learn to trust Him, there comes a place that you really need to decide if you're going to be obedient. And that was the thing. That would come to my mind, that God 
want you to do this, so you need to do it. Doesn't matter. He's he's the one who's doing it anyway. But I had to learn that over the years, even today, doing this uh, God at Work story. Um, I've I've been at the church for 28 years, and I've never stepped up to do this before. And it was just Lori asked me. I think it was Christmas Eve, and and I was like, oh, I can't do that. But that's not true, because you know you can do anything with God, because God strengthens you to do that. So. So if I wanted to believe what the Bible says, and I truly wanted to show people I believe that, then I needed to be obedient to God. And that's really what it kind of boils down to. I feel like I love people more than I did in the past. I care about them. I don't get, I don't get upset about things like I used to. I, things just they're they're more fun. I don't I don't I'm not burdened with uh, worry or uh, I'm not tired. You know all those kinds of things that I used to get. I thank God that I went to church that day. I thank God for my grandmother because she prayed for us every day. And my mother and I talked about that after my grandmother passed away. I said, you know what, she prayed. we were looking at her stuff, and I said, we might not be here today where we are if she hadn't prayed. So we had made a pact to make sure we prayed for my sisters and, and my brothers and you know every day, and now three of my sisters go to church too. It's kind of scary to go into a place with a bunch of strangers, but they don't, they're not strangers for more than five minutes. So it saved my life. So it was life-saving and became changed my life so that it's joyful. So I guess amazing is a good word. I'm Carol Adams and God is at work in my life. Would you stand with me? I'd like to challenge you to take the risk to make that kind of commitment. Carol's life is a great example of how it can pay off and it can pay off for you. Can I pray for you about that? Lord, I pray for everyone here as we head out of this door today that we would look for opportunities for fellowship within this church, around this church, being a part of what the church is really supposed to be, the ecclesia, the koinonia, the thing we so desperately need and often miss and leaves this huge hole in our life. And we wonder what's wrong while we're disconnected from you because we're disconnected from others. So, Lord, help those here, whether in a group or not, or if they need to get in one, to make that commitment to take the risk and trust you from there. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.